Cool. Welcome to the From Poverty to Power podcast. Uh, I'm with Ingrid Srinath from the Center for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University in Delhi, India. And she's with me to uh, talk a bit about her work, but also the state of civil society at a time of enormous political turbulence in India. So welcome, Ingrid. Thank you, Duncan. So let's start off with the, um, the, the work of the center. Tell me a bit about what you do. So we find ourselves in the position of being the first academic center in South Asia to study issues of civil society and philanthropy. And as a consequence, we find ourselves doing two things. One is we get to invent how this is done. But more importantly, we find ourselves with a huge backlog of not, lack of knowledge, lack of data, because the topics have never been studied. So what sort of things do you not know? How much money is there in philanthropy in India? Where does it come from? How is it used? Uh, who's giving it? How many NGOs are there? What do they do? Uh, how are they distributed either size-wise or thematically or any? So literally, you know, terra nullis in a sense when it comes to data on the sector. Uh, so we're in the process, and one part of what we do is really filling those gaps or starting to fill those gaps. The other is to look at the ecosystem for civil society and philanthropy and, and start to build or strengthen the institutions you need to serve that ecosystem. So everything from capacity building organizations, research, think tanks, like talent uh, promotion organizations, people promoting philanthropy, really looking at the whole spectrum of institutions that sometimes in the West I think you take for granted. You know, you, you just know you have your National Association of NGOs, two, three of them sometimes, multiple philanthropy networks. We have negligible networks. I mean, there are small, underfunded, uh, somewhat old school networks of, in both philanthropy and civil society. And so the second thing we find ourselves doing in some senses is almost having to create or build those networks and incubate them till they can find their own feet uh, because they don't exist. So it's not just about philanthropy, it's actually CSS, CSO networks per se. In fact, the problem is perhaps worse in, in the CSO space than it is in philanthropy. Um, the third piece is around norms. I mean, because we haven't had networks and platforms, we have not had the space where you can develop norms. So whether that is financial reporting frameworks or whether that is what is an adequate compensation for a CEO of a mid-sized NGO or if that's, you know, transparency norms for philanthropy, none of those exist. The only norms we have currently across the sectors is what the government requires you to report. There's a lot of that, but it's, it doesn't serve the purposes of analysis and, and uh, strategy development. Uh, and finally, there's an element of capacity building where we're focusing at the two ends of the spectrum, at the very top end of it in a sense for NGO leaders looking to build institutions at scale. And then at the very beginning of their careers with young students who are choosing to specialize in the sector and figuring out how to encourage them and make sure that they're successful. So knowledge, networks, and capacity building, all underpinned in a sense with the need to build the credibility of the sector. And do you have a rough estimate of how much money you're talking about here? So the best estimates we have right now is in Indian rupees, we're talking about 70,000 crores. That's about 10 billion US dollars. 10 billion US dollars. In philanthropy. Okay, so that's two and a half gates. 
That's yeah. That's about the size of our largest car manufacturing companies yeah, well, turnover. It's about the size of uh, well, it's a little bit smaller than Diffid, but pretty yes, big, yes. pretty big. It's only a lot bigger than. But on the say, scale Oxford. of India's need, yeah. perhaps not. And tell me when you talk about philanthropy, you're talking about essentially secular philanthropy. You're not talking about religious giving at all. That is right. So because that area we know even less about. Okay, but. Why don't you want to know about it? We've had, a, we've had a bit of a disagreement on this, so let's explore that. I don't think it's that we don't want to know about it. It's where does money even begin? This, a, a lot of uh, religious giving is still the only, now the only part of, of philanthropy in India which can continue to be anonymous. So there's no track of where it's coming from. There's very almost no reporting requirements on religious philanthropy. And so it's, it's, it's impossible. It's not that we don't want well, to do it. It's impossible to research from the top through a data-driven approach. Yes. But you could very easily go and talk to a bunch of rich people and say, what do you do? So this is step two in a sense. We're, if we're looking to replicate, you know, like you have giving USA, something of that kind of uh, research where we'll actually be talking to givers across the spectrum and perhaps even building longitudinal data through a panel which will allow us to track changes then in that giving but that's something that's still in the works it's not yet off the ground okay but i'd be pretty sure that you'll find religious giving is far far greater oh yes and far worse spent in terms of impact and accountability probably so for my money this is the real the real gold pot of gold for for social transformation in countries. But, okay. But there is a deep, deep secular instinct in Indian civil society, which may be a problem with that one, right? Um, there's certainly um, sort of go and no-go zones, if you will, for a lot of organizations. There's a sense of, you know, that's just an area you want to steer clear of because it's so controversial. Because in India, religion is such a divisive topic. Yeah. Uh, more so now than ever before. Which brings us nicely to the current situation. So you've got a situation with a Hindu nationalist government, uh, quite a strong crackdown on, on some civil society organizations, some international NGOs. Give us a panorama of where the rich complexity of civil society is in India. So if I were to sum it up, I'd say civil society right now is sort of fearful and fragmented. Um, Another way to describe it was there's a sense almost that it's open season on civil society, that civil society is so distrusted, so marginal, so irrelevant that anyone can take pot shots at it or go after it or, or persecute it with impunity because you know it, it enjoys no state protection anymore. And does that come, does that sort of framework come from the government or is it the times we live in or what is it? So to be fair, this started before this pre, this current government came to power. The thing started instead of nosedive around 2012 when um, protest movements across the country uh, started to get labeled as, you know, evidence of the foreign hand. Uh, people were being charged with sedition for the anti-nuclear protests, for example, in Kerala. Uh, so it was really under the, the, the previous Congress-led government that this demonization of civil society started to happen. And of course, as everyone knows, the FCRA, the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act, actually dates back to Indira Gandhi. Uh, she passed it in the 70s. Uh, which when, says what? Uh, which says that this is not... In, this is not a partisan issue. 
that governments... No, no, no I meant what does the FCRA say? Oh, the, uh, the FCRA essentially uh, requires you to be licensed to receive any sort of international funding. Uh, it, it's based on the premise that civil society is potentially a route to fund terrorism or to launder money or other nefarious activities, and so the government needs to control those flows of money. Um, it was amended in 2010 to become even more stringent, again, by the then Congress government. Uh, so what was a lifetime sort of uh, license now needs to be renewed every so often. Uh, the reporting requirements go up every year. Just this morning, uh, they've announced that uh, all board members of FCRA uh, licensed organizations will have to sign an affidavit uh, certifying, self-certifying, that they have never been charged with uh, illegal religious conversion activity or money laundering okay. and so on. So the neuralgic points are security and terrorism, foreign interference, so that's an anti-foreigner feeling, um, money, money laundering, Christian proselytizing, Muslim proselytizing? Not so much. So it's the Christians who are the yeah. problem. Um, anything else? That's quite a range already. I mean, I think what it's done is it's successfully created this cloud over the sector as a whole. So there's a narrative that goes like this. NGOs are ineffective to start with, and that, that attack comes from the private sector. They're inefficient, also from the private sector. They're corrupt, uh, which comes from everywhere and potentially anti-national which is where which, which comes from the government so you're suddenly now almost having to prove you're none of those and is there an effective to, counter narrative coming out or is it there is not so the absence of the networks the absence of oh, okay. anybody that's mandated to speak on behalf of the sector means that there isn't a coherent counter narrative at all okay and just one sort of analytical bit of clarity you're talking about CSOs yes organized groups with a constitution a membership or yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, some websites form of registration so yeah. but civil society is much bigger than that Absolutely. so is the crackdown on CSOs in particular but not on the savings groups and funeral societies and all the other ways people associate and look after each other or is it more why does it go wider than civil society organizations it does go wider than civil society organizations it, it really is targeting all forms of dissent. So any criticism of the government is now anti-national. And it's not just the government that will crack down on you. So you will have your bank accounts frozen, your FCRA license withdrawn, uh, potentially even have um, functionaries in jail. Um, you know, and this is happening on this a large is happening. scale. I mean, there are people that have been in jail now you know, for hundreds of days without... Uh, being formally, it takes hundreds of days before you're even formally charged mm -hmm. um, without bail. So you actually are in prison. Um, and, and, and old people, sick people, people that are, you know, need urgent medical attention, none of that matters. It's the blanket sort of uh, yeah, so putting away of, of people they don't like. But if you do self-help, you're okay. If you do sort of normal social association kind of Yes. Community work, that's okay. Yes. It's the protest bit that's the problem. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, and it's equally important, when I said open season, it's not just the government and its arms that will come after you. You're now going to have thugs, 
trolls online and offline that are going to attack you online, uh, destroy your reputation, um, and in, in some cases physically attack you. So there have been people, journalists and others, who've been murdered, assassinated. And are these, to what extent are these random, unpleasant, nasty people, and to what extent are they kind of deniable arm's length arms of organized groups, including the state? Mostly the latter. So even when they are the former, even when they are sort of random uh, attacks, they're quickly followed in a sense by protection from state or, or, or from political elements. So you've had the situation of somebody lynching um, somebody posting a video of that on YouTube, um, getting arrested belatedly after there's some local protest, and then when they're released on bail, having politicians garland them and celebrate their release from jail. Wow. Okay. What is the role of INGOs, international NGOs? Because you say one of the, the sort of attack points is being manipulated by foreigners. So presumably INGOs are... Well, they're they're vulnerable themselves, but they're also maybe not the right people to know or be seen with. So what is the the, the position of international NGOs in India at the moment? So it varies. I think if you're the sort of INGO whose work is direct service delivery, humanitarian relief, that kind of work, or even, you know, vaccination programs or stuff like that, then you're okay. Uh, But as soon as you get into any kind of policy advocacy, or any kind of uh, support of that kind of activity, that's when you essentially will have your feathers trimmed one way or another. And does that include... So for a lot of INGOs right now, what what I'm seeing is self-censorship. I describe it as, you know, they're sort of almost colouring well within the lines. Uh, And that includes, I mean, human rights groups like Amnesty and and Human Rights Watch? They've just been shut down. Okay. So anyone who you know goes anywhere close to the lines is shut down. So, so Greenpeace and Amnesty were among the first uh, of the. And they're uh, still shut down. And there's some negotiations, as I understand it, to sort of uh, figure out a way to continue to operate. I'm not sure under what terms and conditions those will be. Okay, and if you're if you're doing um, genteel advocacy. If you're saying, well, if you, if you reform your tax laws like this, you'll get this much more money, and why don't you do this? It would reduce inequality. Is that also seen as a threat? Or is that a grey so area? So one of the problems right now is it's not clear what is a threat and what's not. Um, a, a university was um, singled out as anti-national for a report that said the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme was underfunded. So this is the giant job creation scheme, That's 100 right. million people yeah. or something. So some, yeah, somebody had a report that said uh, the, the scheme is underfunded, and apparently this was enough to qualify as anti-national. Uh, so you don't, this is the other problem, the reason for the self-censorship, the reason it's so, the chilling effect is so effective is because you're not sure and where the lines are. At the moment, the Home Ministry, the Intelligence Bureau, those kinds of bodies. And have they been challenged in the courts? So wherever there's been a challenge to, for example, bank accounts being frozen or FCRA withdrawal, in every one of those cases, the NGO in question has won the court battle. The problem with that is it's an entirely pyrrhic victory because you've, you've proven yourself innocent of these charges, but now you're untouchable because nobody wants to go anywhere near you because you're anti-national. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, 
And in a way, there's a link between these two things. So, so presumably, if you can help build both the narrative but also the funding base for civil society organizations of different kinds in India and make them less dependent on aid, they will also be less de- uh, vulnerable politically to attacks and accusations Absolutely. of this kind. So the good news is that Indian domestic philanthropy is booming. Uh, what, sort of people? what sort of people? Who are the Gateses of India? So Azim Premji, um, he's I think the fifth largest giver in the world now. Um, What's his, how do you make his money? Uh, in information technology software. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there really are many, many gators. There are, and, and there's you know four or five others in that from that industry alone, others from financial services, from farm. So that the liberalization of the economy in the 1990s created this whole opportunity to create wealth from uh, privatization of public entities and other, the opening up of the economy, the opening up of trade. And so essentially that wealth is now fueling a boom in, in philanthropy. But there's also just ordinary people giving much more. I mean, as prosperity levels have risen, generally, there's an increase in, in giving. There's also, I'm willing to hazard a guess in the absence of data, that there is some shift from religious to secular giving. Mm. That would be, and what kind of things, so a, a, a nice Indian middle-class person giving $100 a, a year, what would they give it to? What sort of things? So at, at the most simple end of it, there's a lot of crowdfunding for individual causes. So you know, there's the child that is that needs treatment for this terminal disease, mm-hmm. and they do a crowdfunding thing. That that's booming at one level. Education is to philanthropy in India as cricket is to sports. Uh, it sort of consumes most of philanthropic resources in India. It's what Indians believe is everybody. It, it was. As a middle-class person, it was your ticket out of poverty, and so you believe that that's going to be everybody's ticket out of poverty, and so education just consumes the vast majority of philanthropy. Is there scholarships for poor kids to go to university, or all of it, everything from ed tech, mm-hmm. so you know, let's put a uh, some sort of device in every classroom, uh, or teachers' aids, or you know, so relatively tech-driven stuff like that. But really interesting stuff. I mean, I know an organization run actually by an Ashoka graduate uh, that focuses on ensuring the parent committees that are attached to public schools, or what we call public schools, which you would call state schools, I suppose, um, uh, are functional. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, it's such an interesting intervention. Uh, Fantastic. Kind of a no-brainer at some level. And and yet something, it's interesting that it took, you know, 50 years for us to come up with it. and then it took a 20-something kid to sort of say, hmm, why isn't anyone doing this? Right. So, so education is, is huge. Health, uh, because of the Prime Minister's uh, focus on this issue, sanitation is a big, big uh, drawer these days. Uh, because of what's clearly a growing jobs crisis, so skilling, um, enterprise, so really looking at the livelihoods part of um, uh, the problem, and finally, the government has put a huge focus around what we used to call the most backward districts, but we now call aspirational districts, <laughs> in as Orwellian a way as you can get. Uh, and so, the aspirational districts have also become a huge magnet for large-scale philanthropy. And what about the diaspora? Because India has the biggest remittances of any country in the world. Is that going into altruistic, or is it all going to family? Um, I think it's a mix. I think it's pretty much the same mix that you're seeing from the middle class in India. So some, much, much, a lot of it is religious. 
some of it is clearly going to uh, political sorts, you know, the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the mother parent body of the BJP, clearly attracts a lot of support. A fairly nasty organisation. Uh, in my view, yes. Okay. Uh, clearly attracts a lot of support from the diaspora. Um, a lot goes to my home village or my home town. Uh, so even in a disaster relief situation, I actually have people calling me saying, do you know an organization that's working in this district in Maharashtra that my family comes from that I can then uh, send okay, money to? want to send it Correct. very locally. Correct. Uh, but also the other kind. I mean, also just large initiatives around women and girls, education, um, okay. the range, the whole range. Last thing, I've been asking you loads of questions, but how about some advice? And so... Yeah, I work for Oxfam. There's a lot of NGOs thinking, how can we be helpful in a situation where India is generating its own resources? What is our role in this post-aid environment? Um, what would your advice be on what organisations like Oxfam should be thinking about? I think two things. I think one is um, making all of the huge amounts of knowledge that you have gleaned over the years, not just in India, but around. When DFID left, for example, I think the bigger loss was not DFID funding, but the fact that they left with this huge treasure trove of knowledge and experience that they had of programs, of running programs in India. So finding a way to make that knowledge more accessible to the sector in India. Uh, but secondly, looking at more upstream, if you will, interventions. So not so much the responding at the grassroots, as much as saying, how do we build knowledge? How do we build networks? How do we build stronger narrative? How do we look at helping the sector develop norms? So this is what some people call the enabling environment. Focusing on, on the ecosystem okay. rather than on the the, the... the metaphor I use is be the platform, not the app. Typically Indian and modern. Okay, English and that. Thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating. Thank you, Duncan.